Hey everyone, this is Carlos from Seed Camp here with Alex from Divide and Dave from Seed Camp. We were just doing a little bit of uh, chair, uh, musical chairs I guess, um, trying to figure out which ones are the most comfortable ones. Um, Divide, Alex, please, can you just give us a quick rundown for everyone who does not know about the company and what it does? Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks for having me here. That's much appreciated. Um, uh, Divide was an enterprise mobile software company. We essentially uh, split a, a, a device into two such that you had your work life and your personal life on a single device. It was an app uh, that was downloadable to both Android and iOS. Uh, that created a secure environment or container within which uh, there are a number of business class uh, applications. Uh, and we sold uh, to large enterprises, we partnered with network operators uh, and uh, equipment manufacturers, um, and we enabled uh, companies and businesses uh, to uh, confidently use uh, Android uh, and iOS. Um, not only were we protecting and securing the corporate data, but we were safeguarding the freedom and the privacy of the end user. But actually, I just want to follow on from what you said about our chairs here, uh, because I think it's a, a, it's a point that having just very kindly been invited to your masterclass and spoken to your, uh, your, your members and your companies, it's a point I, I forgot to mention. When it came to our acquisition, um, we were very fortunate enough early this year to be acquired, early last year, uh, middle of last year, to be acquired by Google. Uh, and within the industry, it was a very uh, active industry, this enterprise mobility management industry. Uh, but in terms of acquisitions, it was like a game of musical chairs. Uh, and then when you're in enterprise software, uh, there are a number of uh, common candidates for acquisition. You've got the SAP, you've got Oracle, uh, and uh, uh, you've got uh, sort of VMwares and, and perhaps sort of the, the Microsofts and so on and so forth of this world, uh, Cisco's and, and what have you. Uh, and what happens is uh, the uh, new companies uh, grow up, and then one of those uh, large organizations will make an acquisition. And as soon as they do, the music has stopped, and you all have to run around uh, and find a chair uh, to sit on. And we were very fortunate enough that we um, uh, found a, a very comfortable chair in Google. Now, that's a very interesting way of describing sort of what the M&A process uh, is like. Um, Dave, do you know if, uh, if, if Ricardo's going to come back in the room? We had him here a second ago. He's running around. His background's in M&A. That's right. I spoke to him earlier. He has a very interesting background coming from finance, which is indeed yeah. you know, what we did as well. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll go in there, but just to sort of follow up on that point, um, the M&A process is something that probably a lot of founders are, are thinking um, or forced into thinking very early on because there's a preconceived notion from some investors and from some founders that you need to know your exit before you even start. You need to have an idea who could potentially buy, and I still see that in some business plans sometimes. Um, maybe you can comment on actually what, what is reality really like? What is that process really like? Is it something that you can even think about or plan or is it really just get busy on your company building it and then that time will come and the right people will come and that's as far as you should think? No, I, actually I do, I do think you know, indulging and dreaming therefore in the exit is actually very important. It's the only thing that keeps you sane through this incredibly painful and grueling uh, process. Um, so you know, there is the, the common advice that you know, write your fundraising decks backwards. Uh, you know, write your, your the Series B deck then your A deck, then your C deck, uh, and then perhaps your debt round uh, deck, and, and write it backwards. Um, and as soon as you have raised, be very conscious about what you have got to do uh, to raise at the next round. And in terms of uh, focusing on a particular exit, I mean, obviously, you know, uh, notwithstanding an IPO, um, 
you know, if it is going to be an acquisition, then yes, you have to, and I used the, the phrase earlier, you've got to peacock to the potential acquirers. You have to uh, ensure that your uh, product and its feature set are, are in keeping with the uh, particular gaps, uh, perhaps, within uh, potential acquirers' um, uh, uh, product suites. Um, so I, I think it is very necessary to, to, to be focused on that. As it relates to the actual uh, process of acquisition, it is, um, I think it differs depending on the particular acquirer. We were actually uh, fortunate enough to, or unfortunate enough to, uh, experience a number of, uh, of M&A um, um, uh, processes and uh, or procedures, and, and they, do, they do differ. Um, but um, I think this, there's a case for, and really it is a matter of sort of document uh, um, accumulation and uh, and then handover um, and uh, people really you know going through your company with a fine tooth comb, um, identifying um, its credibility, um, which is why from the very beginning it is actually quite important uh, to make sure that your particular uh, professional service uh, vendors, be it your accountants or lawyers, um, are uh, up scratch and you perhaps do ensure that you have reputable organisations. So if you are getting um, audited by uh, a, a brand name firm, yes, it may be somewhat expensive to do that, but if a, a potential acquirer comes in and says, oh, well, I see that uh, you know, Company X has done your audit, um, they, you must be legit. Now, we obviously yeah. can all name examples as, you know, when, when even the, the best of these particular companies have let things slip through the gaps, but yeah. um, sometimes it is worth investing uh, in that and having, uh, and then when, when you go through an M&A process, um, it is extremely draining uh, from a resource standpoint on certain members of the team. So if you have all your paperwork uh, in order, uh, it is less distracting, mm -hmm. such that if you are unable to come to an agreement, satisfactory agreement in the best interest of your company uh, about that M&A, um, it hasn't been uh, too distracting uh, for the company. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and I think, I mean, we, we just had a, a talk at Seacamp Week where you really kind of went into the details of the journey. But it was interesting at the beginning, I asked the audience of, you know, investors and founders, you know, how many people knew about Divide? And probably only 10, 15% of the audience raised their hands. So is that a function of being in the enterprise space? Is it just not as, you know, sexy as, you know, the consumer startups we see? Or is it more of a function of the founders and, you know, the fact that you were very heads down and, you know, just, just determined to succeed rather than, you know, be drinking and you know speaking at conferences. I think it's a bit of both, actually. I think as far as founders goes, we are quite um, sort of online socially shy, uh, and uh, but but actually, I think it's more uh, about our being an enterprise-focused startup. In that, the people that we are selling to are the CIOs of companies. They do not read TechCrunch necessarily. Um, what they read are analyst reports, be it Gartner or Forrester. Um, and we engage with the analyst firms um, and uh, we create our, our relationships there and we go to the analyst conferences uh, and that is where we have uh, a presence. Um, uh, and I think as a result of that, that is why um, you know, perhaps if you had an audience of CIOs uh, and enterprises, they would most certainly, one would hope, have heard of us. Uh, and indeed uh, be using our, our product. But no, uh, in the consumer uh, startup space, we were uh, very much under the radar. Mm. Talking about being under the radar in the consumer space, to some extent, a lot of the sort of thinking around now is putting something out there, seeing how 
people react to it, and then iterating on that. Maybe you can share some light into some of the very, very early days when you were trying to figure out whether or not actually on the consumer side of things, people would even care, would yes. even want it. Well, I think that with uh, Apple within the enterprise, what we saw was the consumerization of IT uh, was very much uh, coming to effect. And consumerization of IT, uh, as I don't know, is instead of the CIO dictating what the solution be should be that is deployed within his organization, uh, the uh, employees say, well, I, you know, I actually really want to use this. Or the, or the CEO goes to IT and says, well, I want to use my, my iPad. And uh, we call it executive jewelry uh, in that respect. And that's consumer, consumerization of IT. Um, and when we started out, we thought, fantastic, we will take advantage of consumerization of IT. We were also, we had a management capability uh, that managed uh, uh, the devices from the cloud. Uh, it was a web-based administration console. Uh, and we thought, okay, well, this, the, the large enterprises are moving towards the cloud, so we're gonna hit this trend straight on. The employees are gonna uh, pull our software into organizations, uh, and because they're transitioning to the cloud, um, that's gonna be fantastic. Uh, wrong on both accounts. I mean, whilst these enterprises are indeed shifting uh, towards cloud-based software, uh, um, uh, it wasn't as fast uh, as it was needed uh, for us. So the analyst tax, I mean, you end up, you're paying sort of 100 grand um, to be a part of these organizations uh, and to be members of them. Uh, and it was a very hard uh, pill for us to swallow uh, to actually do that. Uh, and we decided that, you know, we learned that we weren't getting the the consumerization, the consumerization of IT pool that we wanted, uh, and that therefore we had to we had to play the system uh, in order to perhaps uh, disrupt and change the system um, thereafter. But as it relates to enterprise uh, sales, and not perhaps getting that immediate feedback of 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 uh, views and downloads and uh, and so on and so forth, um, there are absolute benefits of, of going to the enterprise. In that, when it came to um, our particular milestones that we had to accomplish, it was about getting trials in large organisations. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't about getting millions of of, of views on a web page. Yeah. Um, so. You know, really in enterprise software, they say if you get the first 10 customers are your hardest. You need 10 customers with 10 logos, uh, and then they become your referral customers. They become uh, the customers that you can point to and say, well, we've got you know, Bank X and Manufacturing Company Y. And then from that, it is essentially downhill thereafter. Yeah. Um, and when it comes to fundraising, as long as you can identify, you can... You can um, convey and relay the fact that you have trials in these organizations or that you are working with this particular partner. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily actually have to have the contract signed for them to see that there is definitely something of interest happening here. And the other good thing about enterprises is that they buy into your roadmap. So when it comes to consumer uh, software, your product sure as hell better be working the moment I download it, otherwise I'm paying for it, I want my money back yeah. immediately. Um, when it comes to the enterprises, enterprises like to partner and work with you as an organization because they have proprietary uh, uh, requirements, perhaps. Um, and therefore, whilst you may not uh, have all your features built out, uh, a large company will work with you uh, and will help build those features out, yeah. will help get that feedback and help you deploy it and, and learn how to scale it within the organization. So it's actually a very friendly environment um, and can be perhaps less harsh uh, than, than consumer uh, space yeah. where you get immediate feedback. One of the things, I mean, it, you know, in some ways this is the best sort of case I've ever heard for, you know, 
consumer is the most sort of low-hanging fruit in some regards, but actually what you've just described is like a very good, strong, compelling case for going for enterprise market. Now, one of the things that a lot of founders struggle with is some a term that I, I picked up from Michael uh, from Northbridge Ventures uh, on uh, the decision-making unit within an organization. So when you're selling to enterprise, it's not like selling to a consumer when the individual can make the decision on his own accord, right? In an enterprise, it's a combination of CIO, maybe the guy who's implementing stuff, maybe the VP of, of whatever. And so the question is, how did you start, A, mapping out the people in the organization that, as an aggregate, would make this decision to do the pilot with you? And then how did you then create a sales force to then target that decision-making unit in future sales? Very good question. Um, it, it, it is very much dependent upon what is on the CIO's whiteboard. Um, uh, and on his whiteboard or her whiteboard, there will be uh, a list of, of five or ten items that they are interested in, uh, that they have to focus on. If you are trying to sell a product that is not related to any one of those particular items, forget about it. You're not going to do it. Um, uh, so it has to be relevant to that. Uh, you then do have to identify who the decision maker is within that organization. Um, and especially in these large organizations, there will be several people, several departments looking and, and perhaps working and trialing your software. Um, but invariably, one person will make that decision and you have to very much focus on them. There are disadvantages to that. And that one person may, you may establish a relationship that will take you uh, six to nine months to perhaps uh, make a sale. Uh, and they may then move to a different organization. Uh, and you've got to start all over again. Um, uh, they may go on holiday uh, for a period of time, in which case you have no uh, point of contact with the organization. Um, but really, at the end of the day, you have to uh, benefit and, and work towards not just helping that organization, but helping that individual as well, uh, making their lives as easy as possible and understanding the nuances of enterprise software. So you have to make sure that you know, he has to or she has to take your product and then sell it into the organization. So there's a sort of two-stage sell here. Um, and so you have to, or be uh, in your, your benefit as an enterprise software vendor, uh, to provide them with the necessary material uh, so that they can pass it on to the organization. So if they're going to have a trial within the company, to give them the necessary feedback documents, uh, the templated emails about that they can send out uh, to their particular users, put a date uh, by which time that trial must be over. Open-ended trials are, are very painful within mm. large organizations. So make their job as, as helpful as possible as you can for them. Um, I think coming from, as, as the, uh, the three uh, founders of, of Divide did, and indeed a number of the employees, coming from Morgan Stanley was quite helpful. We worked in IT, uh, and when you are in IT within a bank, you're essentially a waiter in a restaurant. Uh, mm. You're a second-class citizen to the banker. Uh, and so when a banker says jump, it is absolutely how high, sir. Um, and as a result of that, we had a very uh, sort of service-orientated um, stance, um, and we were very fortunate enough to hire uh, the uh, gentleman who ran the operations side of Wormstanley, who looked after both the CEO and indeed the president of Wormstanley. Uh, and Wormstanley, for a long period of time, wouldn't do business with us after, after that, because they were somewhat annoyed. Um, but when we did that, having that support and that operations was extremely helpful. I mean, that is essentially one of the largest costs of, of enterprise software is the support. So if you can uh, be at their service uh, and provide first-class support, uh, make their jobs easier, uh, then you, um, you stand a much better chance. Mm. Yeah. Great. So, I mean, we've talked about, you know, exiting. Um, we've talked about enterprise. I think the third thing that we touched in, the you know, third uh, thing that you 
kind of spoke very eloquently about at the end was um, you know the, the fact that Divide was a global company. Um, so with yourself in London um, and then your other two founders, one in New York and, and one in Hong Kong. Um, so tell us a bit about that, like how you actually managed that, you know, what was the reasoning behind that? Um, and then maybe you had some views on Asia as well, which you shared, so maybe we could talk about that as well. Sure. Um, that's, um, well, I mean, you know, many ingredients to a startup, uh, product market fit, uh, and investment and, and founding team. Uh, certainly in my experience, the most important of those is, is absolutely the founding team. Uh, absolutely. We sort of likened ourselves uh, to uh, mountaineers climbing a mountain uh, where uh, sometimes um, particular individuals were having a tough time uh, and uh, others would need to pull them up the mountain. Sometimes the rope between us all would be taut and sometimes it would be slack and therefore helping one another up uh, that particular mountain was, was extremely necessary. Um, uh, we, you know, we're, we're sort of six years on, we've worked together for a long period of time uh, and next week all three of our families will all go on vacation together. So we're not sick to death of each other. Now, we argue a lot, <laughs> all the time, um, but uh, then we all go to lunch. Um, uh, uh, investors used to ask us, how do you resolve conflict amongst the founding team? And when we all worked together at Morgan Stanley, we had a concept called Brooklyn Lunch Rules. Uh, and the, I, the building was in, we were in New York and the, 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 the building was in Brooklyn. And uh, Which building? It, we were in Pierpoint Plaza uh, in, in Borough Hall. Oh, uh, that was a two metro tech. Okay, all right, we were familiar. So on Montague Street, there's yeah, a lot of eclectic yeah. restaurants, affordable restaurants yeah, there. Yeah. Good Chinese uh, place there. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Andy's. Uh, where they bring you the bill before they bought you the food. Yes. And, and you think that's, that's them being rude, but actually they're being very respectful of your time. Um, <laughs> but in any case, so the concept we had was that um, you would suggest a place to go. Let's go Chinese. And if you didn't want to go Chinese, you can't say, I don't want to go Chinese, we went to Chinese yesterday. You can only uh, criticise a particular proposal if you put forward uh, an alternative suggestion. So you can only say, I don't want to go Chinese, let's go to Turkish. I don't want to go Turkish, let's go to Indian. Um, and that was very much how we ran the company. The idea on the table at that particular moment in time was the default idea, and that was the course of action we were going to undertake until such times you had an alternative proposal. Is it Brooklyn House Rules? Is that what it's Bro called? Brooklyn Lunch nice. Rules. Brooklyn, runs, oh, Brooklyn yeah. Lunch Rules. It's like a tongue twister. Right. I can't get it right. <laughs> Brooklyn Lunch Rules. All right. Exactly. Everyone. Yeah. It's going to be a thing now. Um, so uh, that was very helpful. Um, uh, uh, but the thing to bear in mind is because we were on different continents, and so this founding team was extremely important, and um, I was very lucky with, uh, with Andrew and David, and they are far more talented than I will ever be. And when it was identified that they were going to join uh, you know, me on this venture, I knew that I could put my feet up, and, uh, and they would be the brains behind the operation thereafter. Um, but the interesting thing is because we were global, we knew how we could work together because we were best of friends. But as you grew the team, it was how do, how do you disseminate that culture that you have working together amongst the team, how they used to working together. And so we had sort of various hacks and, and things that we would try, but when you came into the office in London, immediately instant message someone in Hong Kong and ask them, what did they eat for supper last night? How did their football team do? Um, you know, what's, what's going on? Just send a message. It essentially said, I'm up, here's, here's an open channel for comms, off we go. Um, and getting that, that communication, instead of doing, initially we started with Skype audio, uh, and then we kind of insisted on actually doing video to see the whites of their eyes uh, was uh, very important. Now I should say we're on Google Hangouts because I was work for Google. Um, but um, uh, to do video conferencing, was, was, as silly as it sounds, was, was extremely important. And therefore, encouraging people uh, to collaborate and to communicate 
so that that, that, that that time zone did not become uh, a disadvantage. And this, again, is where uh, the London office is extremely helpful. And this is the diatribe I went on towards the end of my talk about China and looking uh, at the core competencies of your location, just as you would in a, in a startup, core competencies, the competitive advantage that the UK and Europe has is our natural resource, GMT. And GMT uh, enables us to work with China uh, like America cannot do. And that special relationship that we've so long enjoyed with America should perhaps uh, now be transitioned such that we uh, forge a special relationship with China uh, and that we become uh, as, as equally good friends with China as we are with America. And we use uh, that diplomatic skill set uh, that I think we have uh, here in the UK um, in order to bring uh, the Chinese market uh, and open it up um, for the entrepreneurs that we, we have. So, so what, what implications do you think that has both for um, you know, the founders that we're seeing? I mean, should they be thinking about Asia as a, as a market of priority? Is it fundraising in Asia? And also as investors, how, how should we think about that shift? Absolutely. I think we should just be thinking about it. I mean, I, I, I think at the moment it is all about you know, how we can uh, fundraise from America, how we can sell into America, how we can partner with American companies. Um, and I think that uh, there's a huge opportunity. I mean, we had all our engineers uh, in Hong Kong, extremely talented. Uh, they have not uh, uh, been, uh, you know, there, there, there are, uh, um, there is a market for engineers where it may be somewhat saturated uh, in, uh, in California and indeed London. Um, I think that there needs to be uh, a translation uh, in terms of marketing of uh, Chinese products into the West, there's a different way. You go look at a Chinese web page, and uh, you, you get a headache uh, within within a couple of minutes. It is um, very very busy. Yeah. So helping them um, with this is very important. I think that this is one one thing that we uh, do very well in the UK, and that is design. Um, and so therefore, perhaps to work with uh, Chinese entities and lend our design uh, expertise is, uh, is is an opportunity in terms of fintech. There's a lot of opportunity in China uh, as it relates to that, and obviously that's core competency in the UK. Um, uh, I think one thing that is quite interesting is that I've often asked people in China, you know, would you like to go and work in America, uh, in New York or, or California? If you had to live abroad, where would you want to live? And the feedback I've had, and it's just you know, my own experience, is that uh, they would actually much rather live in Paris or live in London uh, than uh, New York or elsewhere because they have a New York Mm, in right, China, right. in Shanghai, uh, and, and they have uh, these large, shiny, new cities. What they don't have is what they see as being sort of fairy tale, fairy tale mm. uh, cities like London or, mm. or indeed like Paris. So there is an attraction there, and when walking around uh, the uh, MTR or A, I always forget MTR in, in, in Hong Kong or indeed in China, you do see the Union Jack. Um, you know, from time to time, and uh, I don't see the um, Star Spangled Banner uh, quite so much. Um, so um, I think the opportunity is to, you know, quite simply from an economic standpoint, where is the world's largest market? You know, we're entering a time of, um, of, of hardware, of wearables. Um, you know, it's obviously the, the manufacturing base for the world. Uh, so there's an opportunity for us to, to, to work with them there. Um, you know, it, it's often been said that, you know, that, that in America, startups uh, take uh, sprout from within garages. Well, it doesn't quite happen so much in the UK because our garages have got cars in them that we are under the bonnet of fixing. 
Uh, and as we enter this sort of uh, the, the auto technology market, there's an opportunity for us for DIY, which is an acronym that doesn't exist in America. You know, we, it's something we all do on the weekends. Uh, DIY in the UK should be something that we work with China. It is, it is something that we do extremely well. Um, fashion, wearables uh, within Europe. You know, we lead the market in fashion. We have an opportunity to work in China. And indeed with healthcare, as you walk around Chinatown, you will see that there are all sorts of health-orientated uh, uh, potions uh, and what have you. Uh, and they obviously invest a lot of uh, uh, emphasis in this and there's an opportunity for us in, in that market. So it's just being more conscious uh, of the world's largest market and a particular market that America, uh, because uh, of it, there being a, a declining uh, or superpower at the end of their days, are going to have a hard time working with. We have experience of losing a superpower. Um, you know, it is, it, is, it is a great opportunity for us uh, in this particular region to work with China. Excellent. Well, I know you have to rush off to grab a train. Um, and so we definitely don't want to abuse of your time, but this was a very fascinating talk and we covered a lot of topics, which I know a lot of founders are asking questions about. So thank you for your time. No, I'm, I'm deeply honored to be a part of your organization. It is, yeah. um, I'm, 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 I'm very privileged. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah, cool. thank you. Excellent.